0: forget about acting like a CEO or a leader or a founder or someone that people should look up to and respect and just do your job.
1: Ever imagined you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, Or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship. This show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. In today's 40 Minute Mental episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Grace Beverley, CEO and founder of two hugely successful startups, Shreddy, a sports tech brand, and Tala, a clothing brand that specializes in sustainable sports fashion. Grace's career journey is a testament to working hard and seizing opportunities. She launched Shreddy during her first year at Oxford Uni and was crowned London's Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2019, just as she was finishing her degree. She's since been named in Forbes 30 Under 30 on the Sunday Times Influencer List and her book, Working Hard, Hardly Working, was subject to a nine-way auction with big publishers scrapping to take it on. She's achieved all of this by the age of 24. I love chatting to Grace. She's driven, focused, massively passionate about what she does, and also really down to earth and easy to talk to. In today's episode, Grace shares some great insights about the realities of becoming so successful so young, and how collaboration is the key to running a successful business, or in her case, too. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with the fantastic Grace Beverly. Grace, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's wonderful to meet you.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to chat.
1: Well, we always like to kind of kickstart by getting to know you with a 30 second kind of CV snapshot. And we're going to do that by asking a few quick fire questions. So if you don't mind, you're giving me the first thing that comes to your head and finishing these sentences. Are you good to go?
0: Yeah, you go ahead.
1: When I was little, I always wanted to be...
0: or Prime Minister.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh wow! Shooting at very low key. Yeah, kept
0: it very low key, very cool, collected. You know,
1: (laughs) nice, nice, good stuff. My first job was
0: a social media coordinator. Actually,
1: very relevant, good stuff. Um, When starting my career, I wish I'd have known
0: that rest is important, not just as rest, but also to improve the quality and quantity of your work.
1: I'm sure we'll come on to that later. Thank you. I became an entrepreneur because...
0: I saw gaps for things that I didn't believe were being catered to, that I was, I guess, the ideal demographic customer for, and therefore felt I really knew what it needed.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. I'm most energised when I'm...
0: In my flow, I'd say. So doing something that really challenges me, but also that I believe I can do.
1: I think I would agree with that one. And the most exciting thing in your calendar is...
0: I have a post-publication picnic tomorrow, which I'm very much looking forward to.
1: (laughs) Picnic. We're allowed to do those now as well. I I can't wait. And a lot of the
0: publishing team I haven't even met yet. So that will be very exciting.
1: Fantastic. And we will come on to talk about your book in a bit. Finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV, whether that's a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned from?
0: I think probably quite a good one is I don't think lots of people know that I um, didn't get into Oxford the first time. I didn't get a lot of the things that I've got the first time. And when I know there's something I want, I am not going to stop working for it until I get it.
1: That's a great one. Thank you for sharing. I'm sure we'll come on to talk about setbacks and things you've overcome over the course of the conversation. But thank you so much for sharing that, Grace. Um, we also know you have aspirations to be a prime minister. So <laughs> watch this space. Not need to please. please. <laughs> um, but listen, no, I won't, I, we won't stir that pot. For the benefit of our listeners who might not know a bit about your career journey, I really wanted to understand how you went from being a student one minute to finding yourself on the Forbes 30 Under 30 crowned London's Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2019. So I really want to dig into the story a little bit. So why don't we start fairly early on? I know you were a chorister at school (laughs) as somebody that was a wedding singer back in the day. I I thoroughly approve. You ended up studying music at Oxford. It's not the kind of average journey into the world of, of fitness. So can you tell me a bit more about your journey that you went through at Oxford and how you ended up starting up your own business in 2016?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I don't know where, recently I've been asked a lot about the chorister thing in interviews. And I think it must have been that, I think that was the first piece of press I ever got. And I was like 13 um, and they were just doing a piece on it it at the time. But I, um, my background is, I guess, heavily in music. And I think that's probably what taught me a huge amount of discipline and hard work. I think something like music, you know, you hear about talent, but actually in order to, I guess, pursue excellence at any point within music, hard work beats talent over and over and over. And I think I learned that a lot. I was definitely one of those people that, you know, when you're in a, I guess, in a kind of, cohort of people who aren't necessarily musical then you know it's easy to be great if that's kind of your area and all of that and then when I started going into the specialist environments I um obviously was a chorister and went to music school but then also studied at the Royal Academy of Music and when you're put in those environments you're kind of like oh okay this is um (laughs) you've got to fight here because everyone here everyone here is Far more talented than you, and I think I found that at, you know at Oxford as well. It, sure, there'll be people with incredible talent at incredible things, but also beyond that, you know, you've got to work hard, and you have to prove yourself with hard work. So I think that actually doing that from such a young age, I started doing, I guess, that very seriously when I was around eight, and so I guess that kind of teaches you from that point that like you slack for one day and it will be noticed. And um, so that I guess formed a lot of the backdrop for kind of discipline and hard work and I guess the reward mechanisms that come with that. But so I decided to study music at Oxford um because I my whole idea I actually found out that a friend of mine or someone kind of some parents children or something had done an internship for a year before they went to university and then studied something unrelated and then went into the corporate world and I kind of I remember thinking like oh my god that's fantastic because that means I can study music at university and then I can go into the corporate world so I basically said to myself that I was going to apply for Oxford anyway and then I was going to you know if I if I got in I would go and I actually only applied to Oxford that year because I wanted to do first of all I felt like I needed to because obviously it's very expensive to go to university and I would be paying my way through. So I wanted to earn some money be- the year before, but I said, you know, I'd I'd try. And then I ended up doing this internship for a year before going. And then when I was at Oxford doing music, I started up what was my first business in my first year, actually because of a student loan issue where I was then suspended for the, from the university because I couldn't pay my fees. And so I decided to, I guess, start up this business um, and see if I could monetize the platform that I guess already existed in a needs must time. So I guess, you know, thank God for Student Finance England's mess up that time. Um, <laughs> yeah. because that, I guess, wow. laid the groundwork for me restarting my first business.
1: That's really interesting. So it very much came from a place of necessity and perhaps kind of, well, it, I guess your career could have gone a, a different route. When you were going to university, did you have a clear view? It sounded like you were thinking about exploring the corporate world and you obviously did that year. I think I'm right in saying at IBM. Yeah. Do you have any concrete plans at that point before your entrepreneurial journey started?
0: I didn't have concrete plans. I guess I've always been probably slightly frantically anxious about just success and just doing well. And I think that ties into everything I do now. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's a good thing. But I guess the one good benefit of it was, was that I just knew that I didn't necessarily know what angle I was going to go for, but that I was going to try this. I was going to try this. Like every single holiday, even when I was in school, I'd just ask everyone, I'd be like, can I do a week's work with you? And they'd be like, (laughs) Okay, like I, you know, I guess. But so I, I had this idea that I definitely wanted to go into the corporate world, just because I don't even think I wanted to do that. I think it was what I saw as success. I saw that as kind of like glossy suits resembling suits on Netflix, like you know, boardrooms, skyscrapers, and I was kind of like, that is success to me. And so actually, it took until probably the last year of university, where I talk about in the book. In in my final year, I was actually in January, I was. French Googling like quote unquote normal jobs to see if I could get a grad role somewhere. And that was right before I was about to launch my second business and already had a very successful first one. And I think it just goes to show actually how these views of like what success is tie into kind of for us individually, tie into the idea of us just I guess often blindly following a path or thinking okay well success for this person is this so it must be this for me um and I think that definitely fed into a lot of what I was doing because yeah god knows because I was very much intent on that being the path for no reason other than the fact that I saw that as secure and I saw that as something that was shiny and glossy and people's idea of success
1: I really hope people listening to this that kind of feel they have to go down a set path because others tell them to, or they think that's the way to go. Listen to this and realize there are other ways and you can kind of chase your passions. And obviously you've got to work hard, but, but I think there are way more options available to you now than, than the just the done thing. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. And I think that's so important because I think, you know, I think one of the most important things that I wish I'd actually known back when I was younger was the fact that actually success has to be subjective. Like it has to be subjective. It has to be individual and it has to be on you because otherwise if you automatically think that, okay, because you're you know you a tattoo artist, you need to own a tattoo salon because that's like success for that or you need to, because you're, in buying then you need to start a clothing brand or whatever it might be and you have these views of like success formulated based off what society says success is for your role or for your discipline or for your path or for your family and what's so important is actually bringing that back to you how much do you want that how much does that kind of actually resonate with you as something that you want to spend your every day doing and sometimes that's not a choice that we have but the important thing is asking those questions
1: yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're used to spinning lots of plates. You know, you were studying for your degree, became a fitness influencer, you started your businesses. How did you juggle all that? Like, especially at that age when you were relatively inexperienced, how did you do that? And what sort of sacrifices did you have to make in those early years? And I guess, I guess thereafter.
0: I think the plate juggling thing I is probably... I mean, as I say, there are huge benefits to it, and they've, you know, I have a lot of criticism, I guess, of side hustle culture and how it often makes us feel when it's unrealistic or unrepresented in the way it actually is. However, I think that, you know, a lot of the way I've got to where I am is by doing things like side hustles and just buying. Trying new things and thinking, okay, well, this worked. So, how about if I replicate it with this audience or with this product or whatever? So, what's been really important to me, I guess, is just constantly, I guess, test and learn. Just test, does it work? Learn from that. If it does or doesn't, if it does, replicate it. If it doesn't, try another route. And that's been really important for me. But I guess I haven't necessarily, you know, when I was making that decision in my first year at university, it was because I needed to make that decision. And I'd already monetized the platform a tiny bit before. I'd created some eBooks before then. But then this was where I kind of really started treating it as a business and started treating it as something that was a necessity. And that was just because that made sense to me at the time. And then it's kind of always just been important for me then, whether it was just because I was filming 100 recipes on the weekend and filming five workouts so I could post them throughout the week while I was actually doing my uni work or while I was working at IBM, just learning that actually what I did need to spend my time doing and how I could make sure that I was getting the most out of things. And actually a big learning for me has been working out what I don't need to spend my time doing. And when I do need to step back and say, okay, yeah, you can do that. But like there are like 100,000 opportunities out there anyway, it doesn't mean you need to be doing all of them. And that's been a real important thing for me.
1: We wanted to get on to talking about the building of Shreddy and Tala, the two multi-million pound revenue businesses that you've created in the last few years, which in itself is, is amazing. So Shreddy, a fit tech brand, Tala, a sustainable sports fashion brand. These are ultimately purpose-driven businesses. So it's, it's clearly something that's very, very close to your heart. Can you tell me a bit more about what inspired you to start them both and how important is it to you that they carry that kind of greater societal mission and message?
0: So, the the first part of that, the kind of what inspired me to start them, I think is pretty simple for me. Obviously, I talk about the fact that, you know, the student loan thing and all of that, and that was, you know, that was a huge driving factor for the starting of what Shreddy is now. But also what was really driving me to start these things was the fact that I was the ideal customer for them. I was someone who was young in the fitness industry, a woman often feeling like the fitness industry made me feel like shit or marketed to my constantly to my insecurities or kind of positioned fitness in a very exclusive club-like way that just didn't resonate with me. And didn't, I didn't feel kind of really had a place anymore. Um, and so, you know, shreddy for for, I guess, to give a bit of an intro, uh, our background is that we don't believe you should do workouts you hate to get results you love, and actually tailors your preferences to your goals. So you you can decide, I guess, how many times you want to work out a week, where you want to work out, what types of workouts those are, and kind of takes away the aspects of that, where you say like, oh, this is your goal, you have to do this, you have to do this, because that just completely negates the idea that actually, if you don't enjoy something, you won't stick to it first and foremost. And also beyond that, what What is the point? If you're doing something for anything other than a quick fix, why do you want to not enjoy that? And why, if there are multiple routes to that, do we just glamorize one or two of them being the it fitness thing or the it thing you need to do? So that was really important in starting Shreddy. And I guess that's a slightly different, greater purpose than Tala, which is very much about sustainability and ethics. And we we hold those very dear at Shreddy too, and always make sure that we are doing the best we possibly can in terms of that. But the thing, the kind of core values of Shreddy are all about about making People's fitness journeys more enjoyable and stopping to overcomplicate everything just to just to kind of add to the whole like fitness industry and instead just simplify it and make it kind of applicable to everyone and make it something that people can pursue. And so I feel like the importance then of having that like greater drive and value is not, you know, it's twofold, it's internal and it's external. Externally there is now no place for brands that aren't purpose-driven. There are there are so many ways you consume out there. You can consume out there that why would you be consuming with something that doesn't resonate with you on a wider background, I guess, whether that's something that is kind of humanitarian or pulls at your heartstrings or just something that actually has a niche. There are kind of, you know, a variety of different ways of looking at it. And what I've learned so fundamentally is that that why has to be translated internally in order for it to be translated externally. Otherwise, you know, if your team can't tell people exactly what you're doing, what you're doing, then you have no hope in God for, you know, someone who sees your brand to be able to get that. So that for me has been incredibly important. And as someone who was the ideal customer, I guess, for each of these brands, it was very clear to me, I guess not necessarily how to do that, because I think we've tried a lot of things that then didn't work and had to learn from that, but actually how that should be positioned and how that should be honest and how that should be open and transparent and actually something that people can relate to on a a wider basis. And I believe that's a huge amount of why they've done so well.
1: Totally. And we see it ourselves as headhunters that the brands that are genuinely mission-driven and have a strong purpose it really resonates throughout the organization from the first interview from the online presence from the way their customers talk about it it, it's and it's it's really what the best most talented people that we work with really want to see it comes first above money above the job title and all that sort of stuff so I totally agree with that and you mentioned there you alluded to some of the things you've got wrong are there particular things that you know that that stand out in that respect because I think that's one of the the, the things that helps you grow as a leader and as a business.
0: Well, I think I think one of the key ones then I was obviously talking about shreddy and I actually think the the key it's so easy to look at someone. you know, I know my journey has been, although it's involved a lot of hard work and a lot of graft and all of that, it's been incredibly quick. If you look at it, you know, I'm in my fifth year of running this first business and it's already done incredibly well. It's already very profitable. And those things are definitely not to be taken for granted. And definitely I don't say that in a kind of like, wow, look at this. But I say it in a way where it's kind of like, it's easy to concentrate on those aspects of it. When also, you know, aside from that is the most important thing is being able to try things and learn from them within that business. So I think, you know, you can see what the end product looks like now, but if you look at our first few products, they didn't look like this. They, you know, we would try pieces of merch that like didn't work or pieces of equipment that people just didn't resonate with. Or, you know, we would try something like resistance bands of certain strengths and then have to make them five strengths rather than three because people just couldn't use them in that way or couldn't use them as effectively. And one thing that we've never been scared of at Shreddy is that change. And I guess one of the most prominent examples of that was we actually introduced our app over a year and a half ago now and the biggest that was probably one of the most monumental shifts i've had in my very short time i guess running businesses because you know we were a product brand a physical product d2c brand and that was what we did and that was what we lived and breathed that was our bread and butter and people loved it we introduced our app and thankfully it did incredibly well and it actually became the central driver for our whole business and we had to look at it and kind of say okay we're not a product business anymore. We've actually turned into a tech first business model. So how does that feed into the way we spend? How does that feed into the way our team looks? How does that feed into how we market ourselves? And we actually kind of had to overhaul everything. And I know that you know it's probably a bit of a cop out because it's definitely not a failure at all, but actually over that next year, we had to reposition everything in order to make it work. And in order to make it something that people still resonated with or still really understood our brand and the people who still did really like the product, how they could kind of feel still fit within that. And I think if we'd been particularly rigid or kind of fixed on the way we saw our business model, you know, even though that was a success, that probably would have made us fall over or would have left space within the industry as something that we'd established. And then other people could see like does well, and then to come out and do the same thing or whatever. And our, I guess our strength there was the evolution and the really listening to our customers and the data and saying, okay we need to change this. We need to hire all these people. We need to double our development team. We need to do this, that, and the other. We need to start spending way more on this because tech works like this. And, and, that for me, I was like, whoa, I've had this business for three years and suddenly it's unrecognizable. And suddenly I need to change the way I run it and the way we do things. And that for me was so key. I was like, okay, this is why you stay on your toes. This is why you evolve. This is why you try new things because we never would have hit the revenue numbers we did now or the team numbers or the customer numbers had we not really looked and listened to that.
1: That's yeah. And, and I, I I applaud you very much. I think it's, we've seen, With certain founders in our networks, that some of the most successful are the ones that can consistently iterate and evolve the business and pivot. That classic startup word, but it it, but it is really important to move with the times. And there is a tendency if you're doing really really well to just keep doing what you're doing, but actually everything. Yeah, and but everything moves so fast now and you have to keep looking at the data and, and listening to your customers. So, I mean huge kudos to you. We've alluded to to Tyler, which is I know is very focused on quality and sustainability. Sort of what what's been your approach to building a sustainable business because it is something that a lot of our listeners our candidates are, are particularly passionate about now. I'd love to hear your your take on that.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, I guess, Ed, as part of what you've just said, actually, the main thing that we see in our recruitment actually is the interest and the excitement of people, you know, whether they're coming from products saying, I've been working at this place and trying to get them to be more sustainable for this long to work for a company that actually has that at their core would be so exciting. And that seems to be like the driving factor for people who've worked for 30 years in something incredible who I'd look at and be like, you're applying to our business. And that is what stands out. That is what people are like. I want to make that change. I want to do that difference. And I want that to not just be, I guess, like sparkly marketing add-on, but actually be a core value of the business. So I guess to give a little background at Tala, we don't believe in compromising sustainability, style, ethical production, and all of that at competitive prices. So we believe that sustainability should be the norm. And in order to do that, we believe that that needs to be competitively priced and that that also needs to be something that you can still express yourself with, that you can still feel like you look great in, that's still flattering, that's still high performance. And so we make everything from active wear to lounge wear to kind of the comfiest pajamas you've ever had. And we do that all out of upcycled, recycled and natural fibers. So for me, it's been, I mean, it's been a huge journey. The reason I decided to start Tala was actually because, because I was a customer who was becoming more and more acquainted with the fact that fast fashion was shit, to put it bluntly, and was really, really horrible, and that I was cutting back in all areas. And then I realized I was like, oh, activewear, this is actually fast fashion, but it's just a bit more expensive. So I don't see it as fast fashion. And I kind of looked at that and I was like, oh, okay. as someone in the fitness industry who is working with these brands, who is consuming this, this doesn't make sense to me. There's this kind of cognitive dissonance that I don't understand why I'm doing this. And so I started looking into more sustainable brands that, you know, at the time was very much kind of concentrating on the like influencer side of things. And I was looking at, you know, who I could then work with that would really resonate with my values and with my new values and who could help me on this journey that I wanted to also, I guess, encourage other people to embark on. And I just realized that there were incredible sustainable incumbents within the industry, don't get me wrong. Sustainable brands have done fantastic things well, well, well before we have. However, what I where I found the huge gap was both in look and things actually looking like something I'd still, I guess I'd still want to wear. And the performance was there and the quality was there. And I didn't, that didn't make sense to me. If you were just changing the fibers, surely the technology, you know, you should still be able to make it in the same way. Is there just that there's no concentration on that. And then also it was kind of a hundred pounds for a single piece of clothing because of that change. And I wanted to look into that and see if it was, that was out of necessity or if that was just the fact that that was the going price. And it turned out largely that yeah, the margins are a lot harder to operate with, but actually. A lot of it was the going price. Like, don't get me wrong, recycled yarn is far more expensive and the margins are so much harder when you're truly sustainable and look at every area of the supply chain. But it was clear that actually that could be changed and we could be more competitive. So... I think one of the easier parts of growing the business was the fact that that was a value that was so ingrained in the business from the off. It wasn't just ingrained in the business, that was the business. So I guess one of the huge advantages we have is that that's never going to be something we're going to compromise. That's never going to be something that we're going to look at it and be like, oh, but that jacket would be really nice to make. So we'll just make it anyway. That doesn't happen. So I guess it's easier in that way for that to just be a value that governs everything we do from our strategy to our decisions we make every day. So yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, the reality of running a purpose-driven business.
1: Yeah, I love that. I wanted to come on and talk a bit about you being a CEO and a founder at, let's be honest, a very, very young age, and you've achieved so much already in such a short amount of time there comes a lot of pressure with that. How have you handled that? And what have been your kind of biggest learnings as a leader as a CEO over the past few years of
0: running your businesses? I'd say the biggest one being completely honest has been to forget about acting like a CEO or a leader or a founder or someone that people should look up to and respect and just do your job. Just like I started these businesses because I wanted to create these products and I wanted to create these concepts. And as soon as I started to try and act in a certain way and to try and, I guess, like come across as a CEO, as this founder, as someone that, you know, had done all of this, I realized that that was very much ingrained in insecurities rather than being ingrained in or kind of backed in need and reason. And instead, as soon as I was like, okay, well, these are the things that I'm good at product, brand, creative marketing, I'd say those are my areas, other areas, not my areas. So I need to find the people who can support me to do those things whilst also making sure that we're not losing the vision by me being disconnected from those things. So for me, the most important thing has been understanding what my strengths are. And actually just that that doesn't need to look a certain way. That doesn't need to dress a certain way. That doesn't need to come across a certain way. I mean, I'm a 24 year old woman. There are like problems that are gonna come with that in terms of the way people take me seriously, the way people think I actually know what I'm doing. And that's not my business. That's not my business at all. All that is my business is to do my job properly, to understand what we're doing, to bring in the right people, to support the right people and to lead, I guess, collaboratively to learn from, you know, I know that almost everyone within my business, and I can say this like hand on heart, almost everyone within my business will be better than me at their discipline. And that's the best way it can be, because then if I can feed my vision into that, we can make amazing things happen if i'm trying to keep that at a lower level so that i don't feel threatened or so that i don't i feel like i'm still the founder and the ceo then that's that's ego it's it's not it, it's not out of necessity it's not out of something that the business needs to grow so that for me has just been forget what these preconceived ideas of a CEO and a leader and a founder and a owner of these businesses is just do what you're good at support people in doing what they're good at and collaborate with them to actually make things of value
1: absolutely love that and and as a founder of a business that's kind of eight years old now I've struggled with this I, I'd say less from a ego perspective I think for me I it was my baby I did it just by myself for the first two years and it and, and grew the business and and there was just a nervousness of or, or it's kind of letting go of certain things and, and probably I'd, I'd like to think I'm not a micromanager but then but you realize actually kind of you are because you're still trying to cling on to different stuff and you realize actually as I did handing over to people that are better than you at certain things frees you up to focus on what you're best at and what you're passionate about. And you can kind of, you can really move things forward. So I think a lot of people listening to this that are founders, that will really resonate with them. And I think it's just important to kind of take a step back sometimes and not worry about you know what society says about what a ceo should be it's just like focus on what you're good at and then bring in people around you and it's the perfect segue to talk a bit about talent which is something that we're obviously very passionate about at jbm how have you approached hiring for your businesses and particularly around i guess specialist roles which are harder to do if you've never done those those positions before what attributes do you look for how have you kind of gone about building your teams
0: I think it's a very good question and it's one that's been particularly relevant to me over the past year. Both companies have I think more than tripled, maybe even quadrupled internally in terms of the people within them. And so there's been a lot of hiring and then there's been a lot of trialing, learning, learning what's not right, learning what is right. And for me, I mean it's just been such a learning curve and it's been really important to see that actually as a business grows, the most important thing to keep and to maintain is culture and that doesn't mean that and i know that's so like <laughs> i don't know like classic just like startup speak like culture and all of that but actually if you think of, of the way people can kind of maintain their well-being at work and the way the company can keep growing and the way that it can be the way you want to be it, and be a nice place to work and be a great place that actually really lives and breathes what it does is is about that that dreaded word culture, and so for me, that's been about really establishing and and understanding what that culture means. It doesn't mean that there's going to be the same people over and over. That's boring. That's undiverse. That's not going to result in anything good. But it means actually being able to work out what types of people really bring out that culture and really strengthen that and strengthen what you're doing. And I think I generally have a pretty good gut feeling about people that are going to fit well. I don't hire at all levels anymore. So, you know, I used to, I started the businesses. I started Tala by hiring two people kind of straight out of uni and saying like, we're just going to make this work because that was, you know, all it could, that could be afforded for the business at the time. Um, And when we did make it work and we have, we have almost all of our founding members still with us, which is fantastic. And actually just seeing how that can feed into the wider business and how you can maintain that Culture. I want to stop saying it at some point soon, but I can't. Um, and um, and for, for me, it's value just,
1: alignment. Yeah, exactly.
0: For me, it's just been about really. Usually, I find I actually I, I was talking to someone I can't remember who I was talking to recently that said this, but I think it was really important. If you're in doubt, it's probably not right, like at all. And I think that but what people a lot of people don't realize is that hiring is incredibly expensive it's incredibly time consuming it costs a lot to the business not just in you know money but also just it actually in the time that you have to spend finding the it's right a time people yeah. but actually if i've found it time and time again if you don't do that while you're in that process you're going to pay for it later so you might as well just do 100%. that properly then and i think that All the best people I've worked with on finding talent and talking to great talent have just, you know, completely agreed with that and agreed that as long as it takes is fine, as long as it's the right person.
1: Hundred percent. I mean, it sounds like you've you're doing a brilliant job hiring. I find is the hardest thing that we do for our business, and that's what I do for a living. So, uh, the fact that you've retained the early team, you're growing at the rate you're growing, and bringing in great talent is 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 a real testament to your leadership because it is something that all of our clients struggle with. And if you can find the secret sauce and keep working hard and investing the time in it, it pays off, right? Thank you so much. We're getting. To, I want to come on to talk about the book, but before we do that, I just wanted to talk about labeling that the the business world loves labels and you know people are fixated on people like yourself that are young and successful and throw words around you know female and successful it's all bullshit let's be honest what are the real attributes that you think have made you the successful entrepreneur that you are
0: What would be my like? I'm trying to think what would be my like job interview ones that I'd give because I think it is it's one of the hardest things being able to like really big yourself up and be like these are the things that I, was I do say, well. Feel free
1: to show off a little bit. Here. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but I'm actually <laughs> trying to
0: think about what what the things I do. I think I collaborate particularly well. I think I because I'm young and often inexperienced in a lot of ways. I understand, I guess, that the best way we're going to get anywhere is you know as I've said by that kind of collaboration and leaning on other people and also letting them shine so kind of you know I love the culture of lifting by lifting others and I think that is shown through and through at the companies I have and that to me is really 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 important and has yielded fantastic results as well so win-win and I also think in a way there has been a lot of not even necessarily determination I'd say tenacity I'd say kind of like the idea of just pushing through and being like okay this works this doesn't work let's do this again let's spend double the amount of time on this because actually i've just looked at it i've I've been up all night thinking actually we didn't finish that task we thought we'd finish that task but it's actually not good enough and just just sucking it up and just doing things again doing things better trying a different angle and all of that has just been so important for me because i think it's really easy when you have so much on your plate to want to go on to the next thing and try the next thing and concentrate on the things you're really good at. And for me, it's been such a learning process to actually understand that it's not always about that. Sometimes it's about that kind of like grit and just being like, you don't want to do this, but you've got to do this. And I actually think that probably one of my biggest strengths and also my biggest downfalls is the one thing I know I can do is hard work and diligence and just getting my head down and doing something. And, you know, as I say, there are downfalls to that. I think I've often used it as a kind of coping mechanism because I know that I'm good at that. I know I can just like get my head down and work even when it's not the right thing or even when it's actually like to get away from other things. But that is the one thing where I'm like, okay, I can do this. I know hard work and I'll kind of smash it out when I need to.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Grace. And it perfectly leads us into talking about your book, Working Hard, Hardly Working, How to Achieve More, Stress Less and Feel Fulfilled. Love that title, by the way. I know that this has been a a labour of love for you, something you will have poured your heart and soul into. And there was a nine-way auction, I think, to publish your book, which must have been amazing and probably a little bit daunting. Why did you choose to write this book? And what are you hoping that people that read it take away from it?
0: So... I decided to write this book because I felt that it was a book that I really needed. I think that, you know, I often, I guess when I was asked or approached about publishing and kind of said, you should do this, you should do this. I just thought again and again, like, I'm not ready to do this. I'm 24. I can't write a memoir. I can't, you know, like give people this, like I can give, you know, I can give people like hard earned advice, but what I can't do is be like, this is how you do this. And actually what this was about was me understanding that actually I think that the working world has changed so inconceivably for in kind of the past 30 years and yet we expect to work the same way and we expect that to just accept the labels of kind of being like a lazy generation, an entitled generation, and actually not examining the fact that, okay, well, if a whole generation's lazy and there's actually no reason for that because we're not all the same people, then surely it's a product of the time. Surely it's a product of the fact that we're expected to be interconnected all the time, to be working all the time, to monetize all of our hobbies. And kind of, I'd very much internalized that idea that I needed to be working all the time. And every time I was resting, I was lazy rather than that being an inevitable helpful part of my working life. And so I was I kind of started asking and talking about these questions. And I just realized I was like, actually, every business book I read that I kind of really love and I try and stick to for kind of a week, two weeks. I'm like, I'm going to be this person. I'm going to do this and this. Yes. There's a reason why. Yeah. There's a reason why it often doesn't work. And that's because it negates the idea of rest and negates the idea that actually sometimes you need to step back in order to be able to kind of go forward. And then on the other side of that, you know, every book I read about being better at balancing this, that, and the other and how to be a better friend and kind of more balanced and better at sleeping was just another thing that is hard to achieve. Like It was just another thing that we're kind of, this idea of balance, I guess, being almost sold um, in order to achieve and then kind of thinking it's a good thing, but actually it's just adding 20 more things onto our plate. And then I felt that that, or the ones that were particularly kind of rest-oriented, often forgot the other side of actually, sometimes you just need to work fucking hard. Sometimes you just need to get that project done. Self-care isn't getting in the bath when your to-do list is longer than the bath itself. Like That's not what self-care is. And so I started kind of, I guess, asking all of these questions and talking about them a bit And they started really, I guess, resonating with people. So I decided, as you do when you come into a global pandemic, to write a book pitch. And I I pitched it to the various publishers and people were really, really interested in the idea. And I ended up going with a publisher, Hutchinson at um, Penguin Random House, who really, really believed in the idea and understood the fact that, yes, I come from a specific, I guess, point of view and people want to hear Grace Beverly, like productivity tips, working hard, managing time, but actually understanding that that wasn't what it was all going to be about. It was going to be a wider exploration and it was going to, yes, you know, what I hope people get from it is a kind of productivity blueprint for how to navigate this new working world. But also there are think piecey bits in it. There's analysis of our generation. There's a lot of research that's gone into it. And actually it's wider than just being like, this is how to be Grace. And that was really important for me in choosing A publisher because i thought that that was exactly what was going to not then miss miss the mark again and just give people another set of 10 things that they need to do in order to you know (laughs) achieve this big kind of bubble of success
1: brilliant and i will be purchasing a copy i hope anyone listening to this does as well because it sounds like something we can all learn a lot from and i know personally I, i struggle with balancing all the different things in my life and uh you know always being on is something all entrepreneurs know about. And the hustle culture is very prevalent in in the startup world. And in terms of your own experience, you just describe yourself as a lazy workaholic. Can you just tell our listeners a bit about what you mean by that?
0: So I think, you know, within the book, I kind of break that down. So on the lazy side, I think that it's becoming really problematic and quite complex that we view people that work 40 hour weeks as lazy. And I know as well that my Weeks are often longer than that, not to kind of be like, wow, like congratulations me, pat on the back. But I, you know, and then I was also generating this view of myself where I did feel lazy. I felt that every time someone posted a graphic being like, you know, while they're asleep, we're working. And like all of that, I was like, oh God, well, I actually really value my eight hours of sleep. That's something that's a real non-negotiable for me because I actually just can't function on less than that. And sometimes I have to, but actually the majority of the time, I really do need to, whether that's found through a nap in the day because of a crisis the night before or whatever, but kind of all of these various different things. And then, but then also I know that I, you know, I am a workaholic in a lot of ways. And I sit on that side and I was kind of thinking, how do I feel like I'm lazy And like, I'm not doing enough and like, I'm not achieving enough. And like, I'm not ticking all of these boxes. And at the same time, I know that I have a really probably unhealthy relationship with how much I feel I need to work in order to validate myself. And the line I've guessed, I guess I've kind of wrongly drawn linking my productivity and self-worth together. And so I... You know, I I kind of deconstruct it within the book, but I also think there's an area of it where, you know, it's valid. And I think in a way we should all aim (laughs) in some ways to be to be lazier and then in some ways to be more worky, I guess, is the best way I could describe it. (laughs) Yeah. But, But yeah, that's kind of how I view it.
1: Thank you, guys. I I could talk to you for hours. I would love to do it again. We'll have to do a a second round next year. But we're sadly at the end. And uh, I wanted to just wrap up with our final three questions that we always like to ask. First one has to be about mentorship. Do you have a mentor? And if there was one person in the world that you could be mentored by, who would it be?
0: Oh, so I... I've been approached on a number of occasions for very kind of fortunately for mentorship before this year in terms of like someone to be my mentor and I've always just thought like oh god I don't want to waste their time I don't know what to come to them with I don't you know and it's really That's given me imposter like a syndrome, lot. syndrome yeah. setting in <laughs> but it's yeah. really given me a lot of kind of I've I've freaked out and been like I don't want to do this. Like, I just don't want to waste the time. I don't want to. And and often it would be them approaching me and me being like, no, 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 I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> because I'd kind of be like, I'll wait till I know more about this. Or I'll wait till I'm more successful or kind of anything. And actually, then this year, I've talked to some amazing people. And a lot of it has also come from things like recruitment and going for, you know, going to hire for roles and then them talking to people who are, aren't right for the job, but actually are so exciting. And I I don't want to necessarily reveal names, but I've talked to some really, really fantastic, genuinely so exciting people over the past few months who have, I guess, approached and kind of said, I would love to share the learnings that we've had in growing this business from this to this. And they've kind of been businesses that I've followed for years and kind of just thought, this is a fantastic business. These do this so well. And I guess my kind of top 10 like brands that are smashing it. So many of them have now, I guess, come for conversations, which nice. has been unbelievable and has, I guess, shown that the potential is there for places like Tala and Shreddy and is really, really exciting. I guess who I could have as a mentor. Oh, that's such a hard question. Who's, the, who's
1: on the wish list? We've had a real mix of answers to this one. So I was, I'm fascinated by yours. Who do, who, who do you admire beyond anyone else? Or who do you think you can learn from the most?
0: Do you know what? I I don't think... So so I love reading books and I love learning from people in that way. Some of my favourite, like one of my favourite memoirs is Educated by Tara Westover. I think I could learn a lot from her, but it wouldn't necessarily be in the business sense. It would be about kind of life in general and values and all of these things. And then also there's obviously like the Michelle Obama stuff and they're all kind of incredible. I don't think that I... Have kind of one person. I think one of the fantastic things about like books and everything is that you can absorb so much from all of these different people and their kind of life's work. You can absorb in a week, and that for me really excites me. So I know that's such a cop out answer. I'm actually looking at my bookshelves. No, I'll allow you to be greedy. We'll
1: say we'll say a bit of everyone. A bit of everyone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that would be it. I'm trying to I'm trying to see on my bookshelves because that's I guess where I get a lot of I guess virtual mentorship from without any of their permission (laughs) but yeah so that's that's been really important for me and I also I have to say I really enjoy the role of mentoring people as well and that's something that I hope when I have more freed up time that I can do more of because you know I'm particularly passionate about helping and bringing up women and helping them to form their own businesses
1: love that yeah we we talk about it a lot but being a mentor and being a mentee is a rewarding process from all sides and i would encourage anyone listening to this to be a mentor and also to 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 be a mentee to someone as well and seek out mentorship yeah Uh, because we've all got something we can add and there's we've all got something we can learn last two questions i'm we are running out of time so sorry given the success you've had no 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 I've, i've i've loved this conversation how do you want to be remembered? You've had a lot of success. You've still got a long way of your career to go. So I don't want to be morbid, but, but what, what, what sort of legacy do you want to leave on this world?
0: I want to be remembered mainly, first and foremost, by my friends and family. And I think as, as a good friend, good whatever, and a nice person to be around. And I think that I've realised is one of my biggest priorities. And, you know, I care a lot about the people around me and I try and make that very clear. And that's something that I think I have realized recently as well that that is beyond any kind of being remembered for having grown this, that and the other. And I think that also has helped me to kind of inform my own view of success and then say, okay, well, then, you know, maybe you need to step back on this or concentrate on more on this. So I'd say that for me above anything. And then also, you know, within the kind of I want our generation to be remembered too, especially for turning things like the climate crisis around and, Finding solutions for that and changing consumer habits. And I'd love to be part of that. But I don't think I have any overarching interest to be like remembered for kind of like. Not prime one Prime big, big <laughs> Definitely not Prime Minister anymore. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> no, I love, love those answers. Uh, I think there's something simple and brilliant about wanting to be a great friend, a great sibling or, or, or child and just do some good and and be kind. It's overlooked in this world. And I totally agree on the on the climate one too. And finally, there are going to be lots of people listening to this hugely inspired by your story that may be thinking about creating their own business one day. So what final piece of advice would you leave them with?
0: Oh, I'd say probably two things. I'd say the first one being really hone your concept. What problem are you solving? What joy are you bringing to people's lives? What is the purpose of exactly what you're doing? And kind of hone that concept and listen to criticism when you tell someone at a dinner what your idea is and they say, oh, but doesn't this do this? Learn from that. Don't just say like, oh, no, like it's this. Okay. What are you doing differently? How can you differentiate your concept? What is your niche? I think that is so incredibly important. And then my second one would be once again, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate with brands, with with people, with employees, with colleagues, with, you know, you can always learn from other people and they can always learn from you. So when you utilize that, you, I guess, get the benefit of both of you. And I guess you're kind of that stronger together thing. But yeah, I'd say so probably concept and collaborate. You can have two C's from me.
1: Fantastic, Thank you, Grace. It's been a real privilege uh, and that's a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you for being such a great 40 Minute Mentor. All the best with the book and uh, Tyler, and ready over the years ahead. And yeah, we will uh, wish you the very best of luck.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: Cheers, Grace. I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.